everyone sit up straight. All right. So, Denise, I believe over to you. Yes, I have the privilege of welcoming everyone to the second of three um, lectures that we are offering to the community at large um, as a way to introduce you to Home Foundation. Um, Home Foundation is a 501c3 that started in 2015. And one of the most exciting things that we do is we conduct research. And so uh, Alistair Gray, who on his little page here doesn't say Alistair C. Gray, PhD, um, happens to be um, the leader of our research initiative and his PhD is a research PhD in public health and it explores the intersection of education and integrative medicine and technology and he's brought all of those skills um, to Home Foundation to really up the game in homeopathy research and so I'm just absolutely thrilled that we have an opportunity to listen to you talk tonight so thank you Alistair. Oh, nice. Yeah. I totally forgot about the uh, that that uh, PhD part, but yeah, that's a big deal actually. And for tonight, as we start talking and sharing and gossiping and um, and engaging with each other, it it that that process um, is pivotal in uh, in a lot of I think what's evolved uh, with the PGRN and and how we go about our work. And so um, I'm gonna try and keep this to about an hour and 15 i think i noticed that um sherry when she uh set up the meeting had it going from seven till nine i don't know about that here comes christine oh now we definitely have to sit up straight so i want to talk to you about researching and homeopathy and the value of researching homeopathy and i want to get you engaged and introduce you to a couple of things you know examples of say what we do at Home Foundation, and why we do it, and um, and above all, how can we get you engaged and enrolled and excited and um, and coming and helping and working and uh, and contributing as much as humanly possible? I want to make this talk as relevant as possible. So, if you've got any questions at any point, I think I'd say yeah, way on in, uh, unless they start to you know unless I've not got the timing right. And by the way, I have not timed this, so we could be done in 20 minutes or we could be done in 2020. Um, I want to teach you some stuff. I want to talk about what we do. I want to talk about what we've accomplished and um, above all, encourage you to come and join us. And so because it's a benefit, there's an advertisement. And so advertisement time. Denise, I think you could do the voiceover for this one. I sure can. Well, welcome to Home Foundation, where we're creating a new context for health. What do you think? That's my announcer voice. I kind of love it. Yes. And as I mentioned, Home Foundation was started in 2015. And um, there are a few things that we do. Most importantly, is that um, at the top of our list is to make homeopathy accessible to all. Um, in the United States, in particular, homeopathy can be very expensive and very difficult to obtain good care. And because we're not yet a part of the standard medical system, people are having to pay out of pocket for homeopathy care. And so we've been able to roll homeopathy care into a research initiative second thing that we do um, at Home Foundation. And so we're able to serve two purposes. So we get 
good quality homeopathy um, services to people. It's in an educational and a research setting. And we try to get as many people to study homeopathy as possible by providing scholarships um, for that study. And if you want more information, you can scan, look at that QR code right there um, to get more information, or you can go to our website, homefoundation.org. Back to you, Al. <laughs> I'm going to take my, my um, role really seriously tonight. I love it. Excellent. All right. Clicking. Here we go. So we're homeopaths, and guess what we do? Um, we ask questions. It's part of what we do in our clinic. It's certainly part of what we do when we are evaluating our cases, when we're going through the uh, critical parts of the role that we do. But researchers, and I would argue that all researchers, all homeopaths are researchers just by dint of the job, ask questions as well. And, you know, questions can be anything. I mean, one of the least interesting questions I think that anyone could ever ask is how tall are our clients, right? Well, what sort of a question is that? Well, it's a question. It's just not a very interesting one. I think some other more relevant questions, such as, uh, am I any good at doing this? Uh, such as, are my prescriptions actually contributing? Uh, such as, is it worth doing homeopathy? You know, those are all hovering around the same thing, aren't they? How effective am I at this? Now, I've been doing this every day since 1989. So I think that is almost 35 years, right? And so 90, that's a long, it feels like a long time, feels like a hell of a long time. And, you know, some weeks are better than other weeks. Some weeks, oh my goodness, those prescriptions are awesome and everyone is better without exception, even the complicated cases. And then some days it's just like, I've got a case full of beautiful, clear characteristic symptoms and nothing's working, and the follow-ups are, are stilted, and the clients, they say, oh, no, I'll, I'll just leave it. I'm going to go and see the osteopath. You know, it's like you have good weeks and bad weeks. Now, we go about answering and asking questions in all sorts of ways, but I want to focus on those last couple of questions, because in the bad weeks, or at least in the difficult or the challenging weeks, we sometimes, you know, do question, how, how good am I really, you know? How good am I really? Now, I'm going to say I've got only a few faces here, but of the faces that I can see, and maybe even if you're driving or cooking the dinner or putting the dog in the bath, whatever you're doing right now, you can probably put your hand up and answer this question. And the question is, are you a clinician of homeopathy? Are you practicing homeopathy? Are you a clinician? Show of hands? Even the students, that's got to be a show of hands, right? If you're studying homeopathy, all right, a couple of others, even the folks that are washing the whatever, uh, we're mostly clinicians. So if you're a clinician, a homeopath, practicing homeopath, you're not a researcher, you're not, you know, you're not a librarian, you know, you're a clinician of homeopathy, how would you answer that question, right? Well, I think that as a uh, clinician, we would answer that question by saying, well, my client gets better, right? Uh, I saw that when they sat in the chair, they were sitting more strongly. They looked more resilient. Their skin pallor was good. Their hair was looking better. They're better, yeah? 
they tell me they're better. When the client comes to the follow-up, they say, I feel good, right? And therefore, we know that we're effective in this particular instance. Everyone understands what I'm saying? It's all good, right? As a clinician, when we have that question, we answer it in a specific way. And it's real world, you know? It's real world. That client said, yeah, thank you, I'm better. They might even have said, yeah, my headaches are... 50% better. They might have given you a number. Now, that is, in the scientific world, N equals 1, right? The number of people in the sample is 1. And that understanding is experienced. Experience. Now, we know things for certain because of experience. That's called empiricism, isn't it? We know that things are certain in the world. We know for sure that something is true because we have experienced it. I don't know if you know about empiricism, but there's a lot of problems with empiricism as a way of knowing something for sure. There's weaknesses in that argument. And I think that at Home Foundation, Denise and I are pretty clear about one of our goals, and that's to empower clinicians to contribute to our knowledge base. Um, but many of those contributions have been uneven in the past, and especially so at conferences i'm going to say that there's a powerful number of conference presentations that focus on one case that are pretty average from my experience andrea just going to mute you there there you go all right so how best to go about understanding the the ways in which clinicians answer questions and feel good and sleep at night about their work and taking it to another level now without poking too many holes in, but my client said that I'm better. What we've got to acknowledge is that is a pretty subjective statement, right? It is a subjective statement. The homeopath observes. There's a couple of students in the house here. You and I both know that every now and again, in a clinical situation, in a follow-up, we might look at each other and go, well, I'm going to continue this remedy because I think the client might be getting better. And then someone else says, no, they're not. It's subjective. And in fact, if we look at it in the cold light of day, to an extent, it's biased. And this is what science, or let's call it the application of good science, is really, really about. It's very subjective. You think it's better. I don't think it's better. Um, and this is the difference between opinion, my opinion, Denise's opinion, Jenna's opinion, and Rita's opinion, and research. It's the difference, my friends, between uh, opinion and what's known in medical circles as expert opinion and evidence-based medicine. No, I'm not a fan of evidence-based medicine if it's the sort of evidence-based medicine that's practiced in hospitals and primary care facilities all around the world at the moment. That evidence-based medicine, my friends, is run by insurance salesmen, dodgy ones, and lawyers and to an extent, a couple of hospital ad administrators. Evidence-based medicine, the way that it's emerged in the early years of the 21st century is not the evidence-based medicine of 1975. I don't know if you know that. I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about it uh, later. Now, it's like going to the, has you been to the Apple store? You go to the Apple store and someone, in, you know, a 16 year old in a blue t-shirt is called a genius. 
and you know they they kind of look through i find myself being looked through at the apple store i'm saying hello over here and they say just go and stand over there sir you know we'll get one of our geniuses on the job for you uh but in a little later but you see what i'm saying if we just put the apple store aside there's a significant difference between opinion and science or a significant difference between opinion expert opinion and research okay now there's nothing like that family doctor who's been practicing 40 years that can impart 40 years of wisdom in in a situation i think you'd all agree with me that there's nothing like wisdom and experience in the field say a field in a in a field a healthcare field like like this but if it's genius or iphone or iStorage uh, expert opinion no very very different this is the challenge of n equals one it's the problem with n equals one and it's the problem my friends in homeopathy with case reports who's looked at hpathy right you go online you look at hpathy it's full of case reports now i uh, will put my hand up and say for the first here comes layla for the first i'm going to say 20 years of my practice I wrote up case reports. Every time I had a good case report, a, a good case, I thought about, is this one that I'm going to write up and publish and, you know, be celebrated as the, I don't know, the person that's got the case of, you know, the difficult case using that very obscure small remedy. A lot of folks do it, right? You'll acknowledge that. But the problem is they're mostly done poorly and they lack an acknowledgement, usually, of the massive amount of other interventions that are going on at the same time. There are always other interventions going on at the same time in that case report, where essentially the case report is, I did this, the person had a problem, I did this, I get a remedy, I go with a treatment plan, I had a fabulous result. And what that actually means is, I had a client, they had a problem, I did something, they got better. We can't generalize that, but of course we do. And the challenges we've got in case reports have to do with generalizing that homeopathy works because of my fabulous case report. You know what I'm saying? And um, and and the fact that the, you know another challenge is this is a comparison. You know, you're not comparing that with anything else that's uh, in some way reliable or similar. Most of the time, they've been done pretty poorly. I haven't written a case report in 15 years. So if case reports are done poorly, uh, then we've got to do our best to hopefully um, solve some of these challenges and address some of these problems. And this is where you know we can help. This is where um, the initiative at Home Foundation can really, really assist. This is our space to take what has traditionally been done, sometimes well, sometimes not, but take it to another level. And I've got deliberately got an image there of the evidence hierarchy because, oh, down the bottom, here's our expert opinions. Oh, they seem to be at the bottom of the hierarchy. Oh, that's nice, nice foundation. No, because this means, whoops, this means massively biased in the scientific world, as opposed to a good, well-written case report, still towards the bottom, Case series, aha, 
case-controlled studies, cohort studies. Now, this, these areas here in the middle of the pyramid is where we hang out. That's where we as homeopaths, as clinicians that are wanting to contribute to the research base in homeopathy can spend their time because I don't know how to do this really well. Right? I'm going to put my hand up and say, I'll give it a go, but it's not my area. And I certainly don't have the mathematical skills or the statistical skills for the systematic review, for the kick-ass systematic review. You know, in homeopathy, we've got seven of these. I think probably eight now. Eight. And we have 60 million gazillion bazillion expert opinions. Everyone wakes up in the morning and starts talking, so they've got an opinion. And we've got 58 million published case reports. But that's at the bottom. Why? Because of bias, because of the subjectivity and everything else that gets in the way, the white noise. Now, these challenges can be solved by doing a few things. One of the things that can be done is to do a clinical audit, a clinical audit where you plan, where you find standards and measure your activity in your practice against those standards, where you measure the performance, you make some improvements, you reflect on those improvements, you sustain those improvements and you write it and publish it. That's incredibly useful. We don't have enough of those in our profession. I would love to see the clinical audit make a comeback, you know, like, I don't know, Taylor Swift or Madonna or someone. You know, it's time for the clinical audit to make its way back because they will be published and not in HPATHY. They will be published in peer-reviewed journals. In the same way that we can address the challenges of N equals 1 by using measurement tools. And that's what I'm going to show you tonight. They can be simple, doable, uh, and uh, not uh, onerous. And above all, we've got to address the challenge of the expert opinion, or I'm going to say the opinion, because there are experts in homeopathy, and you do want to listen when Vithorkas opens his mouth, right? 40 years of experience means something. You've got to listen. But no, not just because someone has woken up and starts talking. There's plenty of less expert opinion of what we do. And so for me, I love the idea of an evidence base that balances opinion. I love the idea that expert opinion is balanced alongside of relevant, doable clinical evidence. I love the idea, and this is the importance of Sackett, the founder of evidence-based medicine. You know, when he's doing his magical work in the 60s and 70s, there's three parts to evidence-based medicine. There's expert opinion, there's the clinical study, and then there's the perspectives and traditions and the cultural beliefs of the user of the medicine, right? And that's what evidence-based medicine started out as. Now, it's clearly been, I'm going to say, perverted or at least, you know, dominated by other interests that we can't do much about at the moment. But that is a form of medicine that I want to be involved in that honors traditions and science. Yeah. And so here at um, Home Foundation, at AHE, you know, when we get, sit down to eat, what we're actually doing is that we're honoring constructivism over reductionism. I don't know if you know that, but that's basically, if you're here, then you've got a toe, or at least your whole foot, or most of your body weight, in the 
in the constructivist um, paradigm where we value effectiveness over effective uh, over uh, efficaciousness where uh, effectiveness real world effectiveness is more important than what goes on in the laboratory we value clinical research over fundamental research and that's just a little dig at those folks that love to know about how homeopathy works i don't care doesn't really matter not from my point of view i want to see that it works people want to see that it works not know how we want to do observational cohort research over rcts we want case series over n plus uh, n equals one and we want to use measurement tools as opposed to guessing which i think has been going on for a long time and this is uh, where evidence and expert opinion have got a place, uh, where traditional and scientific evidence is valued, and where you're involved. And that's where practitioners uh, are engaged in assisting. Practitioners are involved in creating the data and then hopefully analyzing the data as well. So it seems to me to have a, a, a menu or a feast like that is not hard. It's actually not that. We don't need to lose our values if we get engaged in research. I think that's a very important thing to, to realize. We can understand and, when necessary, articulate who we are and what we stand for. We are, let's say it again, if you know it or not, but from a paradigm perspective, we're constructivist in our ontology and epistemology and our methods. We're not positivist. That awkward, clearly out-of-date paradigm is... A thing of the past but we're in this transition between the two and sometimes the institutions and the institutionalization of one paradigm gets in the way of the free flow of the next but we are in the right place we don't need to lose our values but we do need to address the questions that face us and i believe with rigor and method but our rigor and method i'm not suggesting laziness at all and therefore, where appropriate, we use measurement tools. We use, where appropriate, comparisons of our observations. And these points of emphasis immediately raise what we do when we're able to publish and talk about and rant about and yell about um, our findings. And I think that is a really, really critical point, right? Now, uh, and that's me clearing my throat and getting going. Denise, it's time for an advertisement. Ta-da. All right. Now, tell us about the tell us about your perspectives of the origins of the PGRN. I'm really excited about this because, you know, to the points that Alistair has been making about how um, challenging and difficult it has been for homeopaths to really engage in meaningful research. Part of the challenge has been that the paradigm that has been used is either low on the evidence hierarchy or um, is, is conducted by the physicists. And an expression that Alistair often uses is that the oxygen gets sucked out of the research conversation by the mechanism of action people. In other words, the folks who are in their physics laboratories or laboratories, as Al would say, um, trying to figure out you know, the mechanism of action, the memory of water, and so on and so forth. It's all important information, but at the end of the day, we need to be able to participate in a way that we can bring our skills, the skills that are, um, are uh, embodied by the homeopathy community, and really put that to the test. 
And so what we've what we've been able to come up with is a way to um, unify the community through research. If you've been around the block a few times, you know that there's a lot of sort of tribalism in homeopathy. I practice according to this guru or that guru. I don't know. In my mind, there's just Hahnemann um, and the rest are interpretations, but whatever. Um, but that's something that has divided instead of united us over time. And so as we were thinking about how we can make maximum impact um, in the research world with homeopathy, we realized that we had to go against the biases. Uh, the first one being that we're too low on the evidence hierarchy. Okay. But the second thing is, I think, pretty valid. And that is that our data sets have historically been too small. You've got cases, 5, 10, 20 cases maybe 30 cases, um, we decided that we wanted to figure out a way to have thousands of cases. And one of the ways that we can do that, uh, we have a few ways that we can do that. Um, one of them is that uh, we started Homeopathy Help Now, and we've seen thousands of cases. I think we have another slide to talk about that. But when it comes to the PGRN, or the Practitioner Generated Research Network, we came up with and it wasn't intentional, but the research design actually removes all of the tribalism in homeopathy, and, and it does it in two ways. So the way that we look at our research at Home Foundation is that it's from the client intake to the peer-reviewed publication. Yeah. Um, and so what we can do in terms of collecting data is we can collect all the information that comes in from the intake form. And so Al's team has been developing a universal health inventory form or health intake form, which means that with all of the work of our statistician, with the work of um, uh, the methodologists, with the work of uh, create the creation of a coding frame, we now have built the capacity for a universal health intake form. So any clinician who is a homeopath can take their health inventory form, and we get a double de-identified copy of that form. So we've got all of the information that says, this is why a person's coming to the homeopath, this is their demographic, psychographic information, this is what they want out of it, these are their diagnoses and so on and so forth. And then we collect the outcomes. And so using vetted outcomes measurement tools, like the MyCaw, for, for example, um, we're able to then say, okay, the MyCaw just looks at two um, symptoms that the client has identified of being particularly important to them, and then an overall assessment of their well-being. And so if we can get everyone engaged in just participating with getting us their health inventory form and conducting the survey at the end, all of a sudden, we've taken out the middleman. Doesn't matter how you practice homeopathy if you follow this person or that person. We just know what your results are. And we are able to answer those questions. Are we any good? You know, yeah. some basic and important questions. Dee, that's fantastic. Thanks. There's no, um, you know, you can see that there's a bunch of reasons why this initiative has taken place in front of you. Sorry, I was trying to line up my uh, screen there. But um, uh, you can see on the right that uh, if you participate, then all you're going to be doing is once a quarter filling out a survey. There's a survey coming your way probably mid-February, I would say, uh, which is going to inform us all about the state of the union, the workforce of homeopathy in the U.S. Uh, those are the quarterly surveys. And every now and again, there's going to be another opportunity um, for a, a call out. And it could be um, that the steering committee for the PGRN has said gee, we really want to know about this relevant piece of research around pans and pandas. Give us your pans and pandas cases. Don't cherry pick, just 
put them in the pot, put them in the in the funnel, de-identified, and we'll be able to, you know, with some good analysis and uh, and uh, and methodology, start to learn more about what we do. To join the PGRN, that's it. It's a name. It's an email. Submit. Job done. Simple as that. Okay. Now, I reckon that it's now time to demonstrate what we can do uh, and uh, and you can do and you can contribute to. And so um, what I thought I'd guide you through is a, uh, a published paper that looks, that is um, in the middle of the evidence hierarchy, just as, as I was showing you before. And this is uh, a piece that's um, titled, it's in, sorry, it's in the final throes of publication. The uh, final PDFs came back from the uh, publisher um, yesterday. So it's titled Clinical Outcomes and Chronic Conditions, and that's findings from a homeopathy teaching clinic using the MICOR instrument. Denise mentioned the MICOR instrument. Every 10 minutes, I am getting an email or a, a phone call. Someone says, what? A MICOR instrument? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you how it's done. It takes 22 seconds at the end of every consultation. And uh, this has been um, authored by myself and Christine, who's in the house, and Denise, who's in the house, and Parker, who I believe is not in the house. And let's remind ourselves that AHE is a school, and you can see... You know, some students behave well and some not so well sometimes. Uh, AHE is a school. And if I click on that, Home Foundation is a not-for-profit. Uh, what's it called? 5050. Help me, Denise. 501c3, a charity. That's the one. I always get my ones and the threes and the Cs all catawampus. Just get We'll put them in the order for you. Don't worry. All right. Now, why that's important. I want to say that again because they're often confused. There's a complete difference between the school and the foundation that houses the research office. But what it means, because they are, we are sister companies, is that there is a direct line from the moment that a client fills out the form and says, I want to participate in the student clinic. Let's let in Sunday. And a peer-reviewed publication. Just want you to be clear about that. Straight line. Nothing is wasted. It's almost as if I could give you an analogy that you're, you're cooking dinner and you've emptied the fridge and you eat it all, like everything, including the, um, the, the tops of the carrots. So the question that we're asking in this piece of research is exactly the one that I was describing to you a little before, and that is, well, are we any good? Are the prescriptions from this clinic, the AHE clinic, actually any good? Are they effective? Now, again, you're a clinician. How would you go about answering that question? Well, I want to show about the way that the research office went about answering that question to just get over some of those challenges and hurdles that I've discussed earlier. We published it in homeopathy, and it is, that's a, you know, in our profession, a kick-ass uh, journal, peer-reviewed journal. So what I want to say to you is this. There are seven highlights. One, two, three. No, there's only six. All right. 
Um, a series of 38 cases were analyzed from our clinic in 2020 to 2021. All right. Of the 30 clients who had two follow-ups, there's an average decrease of 1.67 points on symptom one compared with initial visits. What? You might not be familiar with any of that, but don't worry, I'm going to explain it to you. But it's an important number, it's an important series of numbers. Seven system areas, meaning respiratory system, endocrine system, digestive system, showed improvements in the second follow-up with an overall average of 2.35. Every now and again, folks, when you're in research, you've got to make noises. When you see a number like that, that's where you go, oh. And it's got to have a little, you know, it's like that voluptuous itch rubric. It's good if you have a little bit of a oh, part to the noise. The decrease in the main symptom scores are observed for all body system. All body systems, except we don't seem to be any good with the dental and oral system, which showed no change. Isn't that interesting? This group, not going to generalize, but this clinic didn't seem to be so good in 20 and 21 with anything going on in the mouth or the teeth. Positive changes in wellness scores were seen amongst male identified clients in the third follow-up with the KICAR score. Oh, oh. And this study found improvements in symptom intensity and well-being across a diverse population with a wide variety of problems. Now, sometimes in the peer re review journal, they want the bullet points because it's a bit like, um, what is it like? It's a bit like you reading the headline in the news in the morning. Do I want to read this article? Well, that are the high, those are the highlights. If I get into it, we're talking about AHE. That's the school. The dates are 20 to 21. And AHE is a teaching institution. And we have um, chosen this outcome measure, just as we would get a, a, a ruler to measure our foot. We are using the micro instrument to measure the improvement of our clients. Now, the micro instrument, it's a client-centered questionnaire, and it is designed and evaluates and is validated, meaning it's gone through quite a process, to be agreed upon that it is great at measuring how people improve. And the goal of our study, well, it's to highlight outcomes, uh, uh, to find out if we're any good, um, using this in a supervised teaching clinic and thus add and contribute to the literature. All right. Now, I'll just say a couple of other things about that instrument because it is a client-centered questionnaire and it is uh, simply um, administered in the following way. Uh, a client comes in for their first consultation. You do the consultation, but at the end of it, you take... 22 seconds or 45 seconds, somewhere between the two, and you ask three questions. Tell me about symptom one, rank it. Symptom two, rank it. And your overall sense of well-being in the last week, rank it. It doesn't say anything about the hair loss that you came in. It doesn't have anything to do with qualitative descriptions and all of the homeopathic work we do. It's different, but it's useful in this situation. Okay, so new clients turn up in the clinic and there's a paragraph there in our paper about the clinic and basically how the form is administered. It's anonymized and it's stored 
and just confirming that the setting was in 20 and 21. And also another statement about how clients arrive in our clinic. I suppose when you're writing a more scientifically orientated paper, you just really need to describe the setting and the sample in much more of a detailed way. You know, basically what happens? People come to our clinic and we uh, and we go about using homeopathy to um, engage with them. But it's important to have that statement. In this study, um, uh, there are... Th 37 participants that are female. There are 11 that were male. Um, we don't collect information about ethnicity or any of that stuff. And the ages range from 1 to 80. I'm going to show you a couple of graphics about that in a, in a minute. This is where Uncle Al gets a little grumpy because we actually didn't have 38 clients that year. We had 48. But 10 clients did not have a second MyMOP follow-up questionnaire filled out. Now, that either means that a client came for one consultation and then left. That happens every now and again in homeopathy. Or student practitioners didn't collect the second lot of details. And in fact, unfortunately, look at that. The balloons have gone off. And the balloons went off by themselves. I swear I did nothing. And it's the wrong time for the balloons because I know that it's the second of those two options. And we did have some naughty and recalcitrant students back in 20 and 21 that were not collecting this kind of data. There's some information about the micro instrument. I've mentioned it to you. There's a seven-fold scale. Now, the seven, zero to seven, is very specific. It's like a finely tuned tuning fork. It means that the statisticians know that a, a, a change, a variation of 0.5 means something really important. And that 0 to 7 scale is different to, a, obviously, a, a 1 to 10 scale, but it's actually more finely tuned. Now, um, we ask the questions, tell me what your first problem is, your presenting complaint or your first symptom, and then rank it 0 to 7. 0 is as good as it can be, 7 is as bad as it can be, and then we ask about the second symptom and about wellness, uh, an overall sense of well-being. In this paper, we also describe how we analyze the data. And this is where I'm noticing that I can't tell if you're, you know, for those of you that have got the cameras off, but no one's asleep yet. Now, I want to read this to you because this is the critical part. And we've got Christine Lukatek in the house, who was responsible for the statistical analysis of um, of this data set. Um, but I want to read this to you to understand the difference between opinion and research, the difference between expert opinion and science. So um, the raw questionnaire data were de-identified and entered into an Excel spreadsheet. Different scores for symptom intensity are analyzed. Now, let me explain what this means. It means that Denise, right now she's touching head, she's got a headache. And when we take her case, that headache is ranked as a four out of out of um, six, right? She says, my headache, it's a bad headache. Now, she gets a homeopathic intervention, and the next time we meet her, the headache is a two. So for her, her symptom has gone from a four to a two. Bex, 
She's leaning on on her uh, on a on a hand right now because she's a little bit sleepy. Her presenting complaint is sleepiness. Her insomnia. She ranked at a six. It was terrible. And then after her consultations, she ranked it as a two. Uh, can't see anyone else because um, no one else is demonstrating any symptoms right now. Uh, Kathy. Kathy's got her arms folded. She's a bit grumpy. She's a bit anxious and depressed. She ranks her anxiety and depression as a three. But at the end of the consultations, she ranks it as a zero. Now, the important thing is the difference between the four and the two and the three and the zero. And those numbers are averaged. And this is what makes this tool uh, fine. It's a finely um, calibrated tool. Okay? So what we're interested in are the averages. We know that Denise got better with her headaches. We know that Bex got better, but that's a N equals one. Remember? This is different. We are averaging across the board all of those scores and that's where Christine comes in because she can deal with means and averages and modes and I don't know, all of that statistical stuff and asleep. Okay, back to the um, screen in front of you. Different scores for symptom intensity are analyzed as well as first and last micro average values across the intervention. And I'm just going to read some more. Clinical results are tabulated by tracking changes in patient reported micro scores. OK, a change of 0.5. Denise, if she'd said my headache is a 3.5, that is still an observable, a relevant and observable change. But she didn't. She said, oh, now it's two. That's a winner. Chicken dinner. So a change of at least 0.5 in my core is considered what's known in the biz is clinically meaningful. Now, in our study, the data are presented as mean change micro scores and then something else. I might even get Christine to weigh on. Can you can you tell us what a 95% confidence interval is in less than a minute? <laughs> um it, it it gives us the range for what's acceptable actual evidence versus something that might be due to chance. That's a very quick answer. But anybody ever wanted to have a conversation about it, um, happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with absolutely anyone. Right. It's really interesting. But that statistical speak for confidence and chance. The results cannot be because of chance if we get a confidence interval, if we get a, a score outside of a confidence interval. Really, really important. Okay. Now, that means that when uh and by the way this is the difference between opinion and research again so our um our statistician and that's christine as i said before spent a bunch of time looking for uh average changes outside of a range which could be interpreted as due to chance okay more about that in a little minute now uh uh Oh, by the way, just uh, important, you might not, well, this is not important at all, but the specific software package is, uh, the statistical package is called R software. That's what is used. And um, a, a number of other statistical tests were also used, T-tests and something called Wilcoxon, Wilcoxon matched pairs. 
one of the reasons for using those two um, filters was because of our sample size. And the sample size at the end of the day is a small one. But let's move on. Ethics, we don't need to talk about that. And it's now time before the results. Can't find the results. They're having a third advertisement. And so our third advertisement is this. I'll do it. Um, Denise is busy. Oh, no, she's back. You talk about it. Dee? All right. So um, homeopathy help now. We're approaching our fourth birthday. Um, homeopathy help now was established. We had our official opening on March 20th, 2020, during the COVID pandemic. Um, more than 5,000 cases or right around 5,000 cases have come through our door since then. Um, and we've been collecting data for every single acute case that has come through or every chronic case that has been sent forward into chronic care. Um, if you are a practitioner and you need support for your acute cases, if you're going on vacation or if you're just too busy to handle your acutes, you can funnel them through to HHN. We take care of them and then we send them right back to you to, um, to be back in your care. You can um, get really good acute care at HHM. Um, we've got students, we've got practitioners, we've got any student that is getting um, that is participating in the helpline is under supervision. So they're honing their skills, but they are under um, really good supervision so that you know that the clients are getting fantastic care. And again, everything that comes through HHN um, is a part of the research initiative. How's that, Al? 30 seconds of magic. Good on you, mate. Good on you, mate. All right, let's get to the results. Are we any good? Well, before we get to are we any good, let's just talk about who turned up. And so uh, the data set that uh, we just spoke about can be put into tables. Usually it comes in tape, uh, it's published in tables like this in a journal, but you can do some nice funky things. And so we see here that um, we've got, I don't know if you can see that in front of my, oops, sorry, hang on. That's better. We can see that of the 38 folks that made up this sample, 30 had two follow-ups, 14 had three or more follow-ups, and seven had four or more follow-ups. Okay? Interesting. But let's move on. We had 23% male-identified folks, and that means that we got 77% female-identified folks. And it's interesting because if you just follow through on the... Um, on the uh, gender question, then from our table, we see that there's only a very, very small, whoops, do it again. There's only a very, very small difference between the number of follow-ups that our male and female clients came to. All right, it's all demographic data. Let's keep going. Oh, age. Now, when it came to ages, we had 23% that are aged one to 10. You can see as you go around the clock here, the different percentages. We had 4% of our clients are aged 71 to 80. And our biggest demographic are the 31 to 40 year olds, 25%. Okay. 25 and 1 to 10. And then we can also look, and it is interesting for us, the number of the other age groups and the number of consultations. And you can see that the 41 to 50 year olds came to the most follow ups. And it's interesting. Now we know it. We didn't know it before. We could have guessed before. We would have had opinions about it before. But now we know. Now let's get into it. That data sometimes lands like this. And that's when I make a phone call to Christine and say, hell, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Well, I want you to uh, just hang in here. The reason for these um, highlighted points is because I took the screenshot from the uh, 
PDF of the uh, of the to be published paper. Um, what we have means that 38 clients provided scores from their initial visit to the follow-up, to the first follow-up. 37 of them reported a decrease in symptom intensity. One did not. That's not bad. So we're doing okay. 37 have improved. One has not at the first follow-up. These 38 pairs of scores are used for the analysis. The mean change in symptom intensity is 0.79 points. So it's above the 0.5 that I mentioned before. Make sense? We're winning. We're already winning. Now, using a t-test, a statistical test, the difference in scores is calculated to evaluate the change in first visit to follow-ups, and the change was significant from a statistical point of view. So we've got observable improvement. We've got statistical significance. However, because of those confidence intervals that Christine mentioned before, we don't have clinically meaningful change at this point. Now, what have I just said? From the first to the second visit. Now, as you know, 30 clients recorded scores from the initial to the second follow-up. That's the third visit. 29 experienced decrease in symptom intensity. We're still winning. The mean delta is 1.6. So that's 3.5s. We are seriously winning now. From the initial visit to the second follow-up, using that t-test, we're still statistically significant. We've got a number that's in stats below 0 0.0. 0, 0.05. Uh, but this time, I'll read this to you. The mean delta, my core, is 0.5 or less than that. And also, the 95% confidence interval did not overlap. And so the improvement at second follow-up is clinically meaningful. And then the people cheered, right? What we've now got is statistical significance from a purely statistical perspective, we got clinical significance from uh, um, in, in, from that that perspective as well as observable improvement, and it goes on because you can see of the fourteen people for whom uh, uh, all of the the fourteen that came to three follow ups in, uh, experienced um, a decrease in symptom intensity. So I've got that, and lost my place. Um, it, it, the point is that we have statistical significance and clinic, clinical significance with this group as well. And then lastly, we lose the uh, clinically meaningful um, statement because of the confidence interval for the seven folks that turned up for more than four follow-ups. We can see that in another way on that graphic but I'm just aware of time. And so I think, uh, Christine, do you want to speak to this graphic? This is uh, the third um, table. Yeah. I I think that I thought this graphic was important because for a T-score to be meet, to be to, to show that the differences in means are significant, it has to be on average two or more and it's that's the absolute value it doesn't matter if it's negative two or positive two and the the t-scores that we had for these different things are in the the what looks like teal to me 
and those the t the there's the t scores are statistically significant and then the tan that um is a looks for each follow-up number it shows you the the mean change so you know for those of you not familiar with the mica instrument a negative change means it's good because we start at a high number and go down and so you see meaningful change for each of these things and in some cases you know as alice was saying th there's meaningful change and statistical change and what you know excitingly we know that we're we're doing good stuff and when we get more numbers in the data set we'll be able to say you know these um the the stuff is outside the confidence interval and we've made a stronger a stronger set of information i love it i love it and look, we'll get to the next steps um after but hang in there folks no one's asleep yet good all right good uh, mission accomplished from that perspective. Now, what we're also able, because um, we know what the symptoms are, to categorize uh, these um, um, these uh, chief complaints or secondary complaints. And so there's a, a, something to be said for the body system categorization. Symptoms are categorized uh, in, in our analysis, and that is characterized by this monster, all right? Don't get nervous. But in other words, this is looking at the numbers from a different perspective, cutting the cake in a different way. We can look at our cardiovascular system cases and see how we do over follow-up one, two, three, four, or more. Our genital urinary cases, our mental disorders, our neurological conditions, our skin. Okay? Now, I'm not going to hover on that so much, but I am going to go to this one here because there were differences seen in the change of symptom intensity scores across the body systems, individual system complaints saw clinically meaningful reductions in intensity at their second or third follow-up. Okay, good news. With fewer than 10 cases per system category, however, the inferences available are limited. In other words, we're just underpowered with our sample, meaning that this, this would be very, very interesting but in our next study, when we've got 200 cases, 400 cases, this is going to get very, very, very interesting. We also noticed some changes in well-being. The um, that's the third question that we ask all of our clients: How are you feeling in your in your in yourself in the last week? And we noticed a couple of interesting things that uh, there were. Uh, this has also um, come through our conversations with the owners of the. Um, with the measurement tool where um, we get a certain proportion of people, but not all people report um, improvement in their well-being scores. And again, Christine, can you just speak to this one? I love this graphic that you created, but you're going to have to explain it to me and to all the people. <laughs> um, this shows the change that the change in average rating between the initial each visit, so initial visit and follow-up one, follow-up two, follow-up three, and follow-up four. So if you just, for the sake of conversation, follow the, the blue line, the change in rating was 0 0.57 for males between follow, you know, first visit and follow-up. So there was actually an increase in um 
in intensity rather than a decrease. But, but then by the time you get to follow-up visit two, it's gone down to negative 0.43. And then the negative 1.33 is the next the 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 next one and then for the at the fourth follow up you see a, a net average in decrease in symptom intensity of 1.33 so that's just the male line and what is here represented by these three lines is that the teal line is male person um, bodies and then the kind of tan line is female persons and then um, the gray line um, is the combined average of the two groups. And that's, um, so you see some more extreme numbers with the, with the male group. And then if, you know, we had, um, if we had people that didn't identify as being um, male or female, we would have included them, but we don't have that um, in, in the data set that we used. Um, and you have the average, the, the composite number in the middle. I love it. And and can I tell you what it also means? It means that when it comes to well-being, the blokes don't improve between the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. We don't know about the fifth and the sixth consultation, right? And the women, actually, their well-being on average, or both the women and also the overall average, just slips a bit between three and four. And that's interesting. Like, think about it. Why would someone not continue to improve between the third and the fourth visit? All right. Now, hang in there because I'm almost done. What are we going to discuss? Well, our study, this study, that statistical analysis and the demographic analysis brings up a bunch of things that we could all talk about. And that's what we want to do. We want to talk with the community about what's what this shows. One is that it shows that we've got a challenge with adherence. All right. We'll talk about adherence in a minute, demographics and compl and presenting complaints, statistical and clinically significant improvements, and sustained improvement. Adherence. What does that mean? We need to make sure our students give us the data. That means that there are, in our operations, in our clinical uh, facilities, still um, a problem. That's that 21%. Uh, of cases from a research perspective are lost, right? 20%. That's a lot to lose just because someone, and it's Denise and my responsibility is kind of steering the ship because we didn't have anyone on the job making sure that this data is um, collated, you know, and therefore 21. Now, 21% 21 of 38, it's not the end of the world, but 21% of 5,000, that's a waste. We cannot let that happen if we are, you know, to achieve our own uh, goals and aims. All right, adherence. Um, this is important. We're seeing the boys. Now, the boys are coming to clinic and they are doing okay. They're getting good results. And uh, one of the things that we see is that, um, you know, if a quarter of our clients, usually it's high, around a quarter to a third, um, then we're seeing that they are, uh, turning up for the same amount of follow-ups. So that's good. And they are improving. Now you can see that there's something else there as well, the categorization of presenting complaints. I'll just mention this really, really quickly. You see, if someone turns up and they say, I've got uh, insomnia, 
then it's very easy to categorize and place that that presenting complaint in the right pigeonhole. You know, it's insomnia. But when the person says, I don't feel very well, right? Or I've got a bit of vertigo and sometimes it's nausea. Like if if we are trying to categorize that, then how do we do it? And so if I'm going back, let's go to yeah, this chart, then you can see these are uh, conventional medical categorizations. And very often, I'm going to say very often, we were challenged in our analysis because our clients' first and second symptoms really didn't fit beautifully or tidily into this. You can just imagine your last client, um, Denise, you had a client yesterday who had eczema, all right? So that would clearly go in the skin um, category. But what about I feel funny or, you know, I'm off or I've got uh, something, um, say, for example, pans and pandas that might not be so easily classified. We noticed that and it impacted our study. We find that we're doing well. And um, additionally, some um, there are improvements in symptom intensity over the course of client visits. Full stop, we can go to the judge and say, look, this is how we're doing. Um, given the small sample size, we can't generalize and we shouldn't generalize too much, especially if we are to be taken seriously by the scientific um, uh, community. But what that means is, what this means is, yes, this study shows genuine um, and important improvement, and let's take it further. Let's take it to the next level. But I also think it's interesting that what we're showing is that we don't have sustained improvement. Now, what that means is, yeah, we've got improvement, but it's not a straight line. And there's evidence using MICOR, and see, the MICOR instrument is often used in acupuncture or naturopathy and other complementary medicines. And what they show is sustained improvement with interventions. Not always, but do you understand it's the sixth visit, it's still improving. The numbers are improving. And we're not showing that. We show improvement overall, but not necessarily in a sustained way. And that's in contrast to other findings. All right, that's the discussion. Before we get to the conclusion, Denise, are you ready? It's advertisement time. I'm ready. All right. So advertisement or advertisement for um, is it's a benefit. So, of course, um, we want to let people know that we are completely funded by donations. Um, we've been really lucky. We had an angel donor who helped us to get set up back in the early days. And we've had some generous um uh, donations to the foundation that keep us going. So if you or someone you know has um, funds to support uh, homeopathy research, um, give them our name. Um, it's really, really important for us to be able to get support. I love it. And what I'm going to do is just mention that actually there are some projects that we've got going that actually specifically could do with um, uh, a certain amounts. And I think that's really, really important. Okay, so heading towards the limitations in our study, there are a couple. I mean, one of the things that we've got to acknowledge that 30, um, 38 folks, it's 38 folks. Large studies are impressive 
um, small ones can be as impressive from a results perspective, but the numbers just are hindering us. Now it's only a year. And so really um, we're going to get over that hurdle um, and I'll show you in a minute. At the moment, Christine is working on a paper where we've done exactly the same thing, but the data has come from 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. And I don't think 23. I don't know if 23 has been included. But actually, Christine, is it 400 and 400 and something cases? Um, the, There are 400 something clients. I'm not sure the total number that those numbers aren't as fixed in my head as this this project that we've wrapped up here. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, um, to the to the sample size, you know, uh, as time goes by, we've got some clear solutions there. The sensitivity of the the sensitivity of the instrument, I, I just think is is it has to be spoken about. It doesn't really attend to the way in which we go about homeopathy practice. And you can imagine that if like um, see, Denise and I run our, our practices slightly differently, I book my clients in for their follow ups in a month. But Denise doesn't. She says, if you need me, call me. And so, of course, when her clients are coming back, their symptoms are starting to reappear. And of course, that has an immediate impact on uh, the, the the numbers. That's probably evens out. It evens out over a significant number of people. But I think the sensitivity of the instrument could be questioned. And, um, you know, of course, we're not going to generalize uh, hugely. What we've done here is demonstrated that this little clinic run by a bunch of passionate folks with good supervision, we do okay. And that's the conclusion. The conclusion of this study is that despite, oh, there we go, um, despite all uh, challenges and odds, a review of one year of our teaching clinic shows statistically significant, clinically meaningful improvements and symptoms across a diverse group and hoo-ha the improvement is evident across multiple body systems and um you know as a consequence this design the study design um and the sample size which limits it means that we need to do more and that's exactly what we're going to do and i think the instrument despite its limitations is useful and a bunch of references all right, so you've got to always have the references, the references, references, yada, yada. All right. So what have we discussed? Now we know. We know that we are effective. We are real world effective. We can say that. I can sleep at night because now I know. I would have guessed. I can look at my diary and calendar and see, oh, yeah, I think she's doing better just from my memory. But now we know, and with that clinical significance and statistical significance, I think it's really important to hear and articulate. And so I'm now going to just hit that slide because it looks like an advertisement, but it's not really. I think what I want to say is I've given you an example of what we do. I've given you an example of the work that has taken four people and a couple of helpers perhaps start to finish six months work. It's not six months every day, but it's six months of work. And from start to finish, when we think about what we're doing at um, the PGRN, I think it's also an opportunity to show you that we've got 
a bunch of projects in the works to follow on from this. So, for example, from 2017 to 2020, we used a different measurement tool, and we're going to be writing about that. We've also done and conducted a clinical audit of the HHN, the Homeopathic Help Network. That's actually finished. We're just tidying it up and we'll submit it for publication soon. But really, I mean, if you want to get excited, we have 5,000 cases from our acute clinic that have been, um, that are ready. The button has been pressed and we're evaluating and analyzing that data. I don't know if, um, how Christine's blood pressure is, but you know, she's about to get a spreadsheet with 5,000 um, people on it with multiple factors to explore. I, now, live, that... I live for this stuff, right? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but I just right. love it. So. Thank God for that, because if you had hypertension, we'd all be in trouble. Um, you can see that we've got a couple of other uh, really important projects. Denise mentioned one about intake forms. The PGRN is interested in all of the intake forms, not only from us, but from you. And what you'll be hearing from us is a, a push, an initiative, a, uh, a request that you start to use an intake form in your practices. Now, imagine you don't want to. Like Andrea, for example, she's just gone sideways. Can everyone see that? Andrea said, I'm a sideways kind of girl, and I don't want to use your intake form. Well, it doesn't matter because we've still got a way to deal with that intake form as well. But we want them. We want to know who's coming to homeopathy. And this is the characteristics of users of homeopathy in the US project. And um, I think we're going to start getting down and granular and gritty with that project real quick. Um, you're about to get a survey, those of you that are practitioners, as I mentioned in mid-February, because the North American Workforce Survey is being designed as we speak, the questions are being polished, and that's on its way. And then we've got Tanya Kell in the house. Do we still have Tanya? Say hi, Tanya, if you're around, because Tanya is off to Brazil, again, to say hi to dad and her hey. extended family, but also to get work done on the homeopathy and the management of silicosis project. Tanya, do you want to say anything about it? Um, I never realized how hard work um, research was and how meticulous you had to be about every detail. I've learned a lot. I'm sure I'm going to continue to learn a lot trying to get people enrolled. Um, and I, I just really hope it works. So. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Isn't it interesting? Because I mean, as researchers, we're agnostic, you know, we're kind of non-denominational, you know, where if we're just looking at phenomena, then, oh, that's fine. But we really, really want the application of silicosis 12 uh, silica 12c to be effective in real world settings with folks that are really suffering from silicosis and so yeah um we've got our ethics application with the brazilian ministry of health um and they've been silent on it for about six weeks so we're really hoping to get a positive response from them soon I'd mentioned this one. I think this project is fascinating because I don't know if you know about artificial intelligence and in homeopathy, but it's here and people are using it. And that is a scary thought from my point of view. Let's investigate it. Let's talk about it. Let's do some studies about it. And of course, we've got, um, as I mentioned, a case series 
of from 2017 to 2023, I think, of the use of MyCore and MyMop. And these are the projects that we are currently um, doing. Uh, what we have, let's just go back a step there because look, there's Denise Knight. Because uh, let's not say that we have been um, busy on these projects only and um, the one that I've just mentioned to you because the other uh, important thing for you to realize is that we have been also very busy on multiple, on many other um, projects. And so uh, this year, last year, 2023, we have another, a number of publications. There's, you can see four here, one, two, three, and four. Um, findings from our office, uh, Stranger Peculiar Symptoms of COVID that was published in Homeopathy. Um, but I'd also just alert you to this one here, and this is the fact that Denise had a textbook, a textbook, a book. Uh, well, I mean, it might be a textbook. Who knows? It should be in the history of medicine because this book here, I click on it, see where it takes us. Look at that. She's got her own web page. Hot off the press. Denise, you want to say something? <laughs> I didn't know about that page. I'm a little bit stunned. Wow. Well, how do you think people are buying it? Well, because they go yeah. to this page. I guess, yeah. Wow. Um, geez. So um, I... It looks, can I say it looks fatter in this? Do you see this? <laughs> yeah, I have a copy here. It's not It's not quite... It does look fatter there. Mm -hmm. um, I spent um, four years, uh, Johns Hopkins, in the history of medicine department at, in the medical school. And um, I was absolutely determined that my thesis would... Um, my dissertation thesis would have the word homeopathy in it so that when you were in the Johns Hopkins library search, you could search for homeopathy and something would come up. And uh, yeah, and so we published it as a book. And it's about, well, many of you were here last week. And it's about the influence of uh, homeopathy and the evolution of, of 19th century um, science and medicine and the inverse and the way that the two cannot be um, separated. And it was it was quite a learning experience. So, yeah. Hey, thanks for that, Al. That was a little No surprise. worries. Well, I mean, in terms of our activity in the last year, you can see that down the bottom, we've also been publishing in non-peer-reviewed journals as well, especially our case series. Um, we were really busy last year. I think definitely upwards of 12 different publications. And so I think, you know, it just, um, I want to highlight the fact that this is, um, that this is, that we are, that we are um, busy and we're committed and we want to bring you along. And I think uh, that's the, 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 the last message. We've got plenty of hopes and dreams and future projects, um, uh, clinical audits and um, uh, our findings from our low-cost clinic and um, the education surveys, which will be coming out from last year. Lots of proving work that we can do. There's going to be no shortage of work. But I think, um, uh, and as well as that, I'd also mention that, of course, we are happy, happy to deal with, I want to help, but I don't know how to do it. We've got an 11, uh, um, 11 lecture course on homeopathy research, and we are totally uh, happy to assist in upskilling, or if you want to donate an hour, we'll find something. You know, it's as... Um, We've got a, 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 
a willingness to improve, let's say, the capacity of uh, skills in research in our community. And then the last thing I'd say is this one. And again, it, this is an advertisement, and it is the, uh, the, the future project that we are most passionate about. And I'll leave it for Denise to talk about this one. And, um, and that's it for me for this evening. Yeah, so this project is, um, gosh, we're coming up on three years now. Uh, and this project was actually um, inspired because a dear friend of Gwyneth Paltrow's, um, as in Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress, uh, one of her dearest friends passed uh, a few years ago. And her passing was facilitated by a lot of integrative um interventions, including homeopathy. And so somehow they found me and they asked if we would be interested in providing some homeopathy services to this project. And I said, well, you know, you couldn't have stepped in at a better time because we've got this telehealth service. And it's um, it's something that I've been involved with for a long time is providing end-of-life care. And it, it has become, um, it's become something really exciting um, we just had a meeting today about it. We are, we're really looking to create a paradigm shift in end of life experience and for people who are passing and also their family, friends, and caregivers. Um, we are, it's a, it's a big undertaking. It's, it's so much bigger than we thought it would be. Um, we are working on a lot of legal aspects of, um, how we can create, uh, a care directive for people who want homeopathy as you know a part of their end of life experience um we're having to recreate the research instruments because the ones that exist actually don't mirror what we do that was a big part of our our meeting today we're creating a whole infrastructure um, and training for homeopaths to be able to provide care for people who are at those end stages. And the way that the project looks is that we've got three tiers of care. And if we go to the, the final tier is uh, a person who is in the very last stages of, of their you know existence before um, they transition. Then there is someone who is hospice eligible, um, who is seeking out palliative care. And then there is um, a tier of this project that uh, addresses the fact that People will come to us when they have received a life-limiting diagnosis. And one of the challenges in homeopathy is that there's, there's really no sort of um, reliable directory that says this person is qualified to handle the complexity of, you know, of someone's situation. And so um, with Molly Punzo, who's our medical director for this project, we are working on um, a vetting process so that homeopaths who are interested in providing care can take a course with us. We have a, a three um, a three section course. It's going to be three 90 minute sessions um, that starts in May. And um, for people who are experienced practitioners, they'll be able to um, apply to be a part of this, um, the what we call tier one, which is, you know, folks who are qualified to be able to provide that level of, you know, care for these complex medical diagnoses. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's terrifying. It is, you know, it is really stepping into something where um, we believe we can help the paradigm shift that's already happening. You know, years ago, 
people died at home with traditional interventions and then people started dying in hospitals and then we lost sight of what you know what we do to care for our loved ones at home and then the hospice movement started um and that, then the death doulas stepped in right how can we sort of reinstate traditional values into this end of life experience and i think what has happened with the folks who are adjacent to the goop project is that they really have recognized that um, there are lots of different ways that people can have a better experience, um, you know, at the end of their life. And so um, the folks who are who are integral to that side of the project, we sort of exist as a parallel to what's happening on um, on the Goop side. But the the women who are who are heading up that project are are absolutely amazing, and we're really fortunate to be you know to be a part of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Folks, any questions? Or is it time for a glass of wine? Or a cup of tea? <laughs> or a sleep? Yeah, exactly. Um, anyone at all? All right. Well, well, I just jump in and say as a student, it's thoroughly exciting to be a part of it and to see this end of it and to, to get this from the ground up. Um, so thank you for the way you've led us in that and for bringing us along. It's just really potentizes our learning one more step. So mm. Yeah, good, good. Thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes I think the, the bewilderment of why are we taking, why are we doing the survey that takes 45 seconds at the end of each consultation and Perhaps to actually see um, see a presentation or or read a, a publication um, gives it some meaning actually and uh, some context. It's good. All right. Well, in that case, if there's nothing else. I'm going to wish you good evening. Have a great rest of your day. Your your evening. Have a sleep. Uh, and uh, and let's hit it all again tomorrow. And if you want to reach out, find out anything about anything that's been talked about today, then do not hesitate. And um, you can hit us at one of the websites, either AHE or uh, Homeopathy Help Network. Thank you, Alistair. You're welcome. Take care. See ya. Thanks, everybody, for being here. <laughs>